1196 and is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 10. That's page 1196. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learnt and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ruth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, your um, very breathed words on the pages of our Bibles. We pray that as we look at those words this morning, we would be changed by them. You would be at work in our hearts and in our minds to make us ever more like Christ. Amen. Ten years ago, William P. Young published his novel, The Shack. It has since sold over 22 million copies worldwide and been made into a film. Both the book and the film spark controversy and argument among both Christians and non-Christians. No one, it seems, can agree on whether Christians should love or hate the book. Is it simply a work of fiction we shouldn't get our knickers in a twist about? Or is it downright heresy that should be burned on mass bonfires? The problem is that because this is a work of fiction, it's difficult for us to tease out what the author really thinks about God. Is he merely struggling to depict something beyond our human understanding as he examines the roles of the members of the Trinity? Or is there something underlying what he says about the role of God in suffering that needs further investigation? We can't tell. Well, not from the shack anyway. But this year, under the name Paul Young, the same author has released another book. Not a work of fiction this time, but a way of setting people, whom he seems to mean evangelical Christians mainly, uh, straight about some of the things they believe about God. Lies We Believe About God shows how 28 things evangelical Christians believe cannot possibly be true. The chapters cover such apparent lies as God is good and I am not. God is in control. He claims instead that God submits himself to our mess and tries to make good out of it. The cross was God's idea. He claims we designed it, we chose it for Jesus, God just did what he could with it. 
and perhaps the most terrifying, you don't need to get saved. Let me read you an excerpt from that chapter. So what is the good news? What is the gospel? The good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father, and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote, and whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. What or who saves me? Either God did in Jesus, or I saved myself. If in any way I participate in the completed act of salvation accomplished in Jesus, then my part is actually what saves me. Saving faith is not our faith, but the faith of Jesus. God does not wait for my choice and then save me. God has acted decisively and universally for all mankind. Now our daily choice is to either grow and participate in that reality or continue to live in the blindness of our own independence. Now up to that point, kind of sounds okay. There are things I would take issue with, but that kind of sounds okay. But he continues. Are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? That is exactly what I'm saying. Here's the truth. Every person who has ever been conceived was included in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. When Jesus was lifted up, God dragged all human beings to himself. John 12, 32. Jesus is the saviour of all humankind, especially believers. 1 Timothy 4, 10. Further, every single human is being is in Christ. John 1, 3. And Christ is in them, and Christ is in the Father. John 14, 20. When Christ, the creator in whom the cosmos was created, died... We all died. When Christ rose, we all rose. 2 Corinthians 5. Suddenly everything Young writes in the shack becomes coloured by this unbiblical, liberal form of Christianity. And my guess would be that to read his new book first, and then the novel, might leave one with a slightly different opinion of it. The problem is that thousands of people have changed their view of God not on the basis of the words they found in the Bible, but on the fictional writings of a man whose theology has now been proven to be liberal at best and unbiblical at its core. Why do I bring this up? What has it got to do with 2 Timothy? Well, look at verse 14, because that's going to be my focus for this morning. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from whom you have learned it. For me, this verse raises two questions that we need to constantly ask ourselves when we're reading Christian books. The verses beyond it raise one more, but I'm going to come back to that. The questions are, what have you learned? And who did you learn it from? What have you learned? And who did you learn it from? Now, I'm going to look at them in reverse order because uh, it seems to make more sense that way. So why does it matter who we learn from? Timothy had learnt from three people, Paul as his mentor, Eunice's mother and Lois his grandmother. When it comes to checking who we're learning from, we need to know that we can trust them. Now, clearly, Paul trusts and respects Eunice and Lois. This is the second time he's alluded to them in this letter. Paul knows that these women have taught Timothy well and reminds him that he's had good teachers. You know those from whom you learnt it. 
Paul also reminds Timothy that he's learned from him as well. In verse 10 he says, You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. Paul has shared his life with Timothy. He's taught him out of relationship. And he reminds him that he's never hidden anything from him. Timothy knows that he can trust the things Paul has taught him because he can trust Paul. But most importantly, Paul has never changed his teaching. He hasn't changed his mind about anything. Paul's teaching has been consistent. Remember that Timothy is surrounded by false teaching and those who would, as we heard last week, oppose the truth. Paul is telling Timothy to compare those teachers with the women he spent his life learning from. Who does he trust? Who has proven themselves to be worthy of that trust? There may well come days for Timothy when Paul is gone that Timothy wonders if perhaps these false teachers are right. When they've got crowds around them and Timothy feels like a lone voice, which way will he turn? Will he be swayed by popular teaching or will he stick to his guns and stand for what he learnt at his grandmother's knee? It's really important that we keep learning, that we keep listening to sermons, to podcasts, keep reading. Yes, reading our Bibles, but reading commentaries, Christian books, reading the stories of others, the struggles and battles they've had, the things they've learnt about God along the way. But we need to be careful. Who are we learning from? Can we trust them? Can we trust what they're teaching? Have they proven themselves thus far to be trustworthy? Are they standing for the gospel? Or do their views change like shifting sands? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should only be learning from people who never, ever get it wrong. Because you need to not listen to another sermon I preach if that is the case. Those people are not out there. There may be times when we find that someone we've trusted to teach well changes their mind about something. The question then is, what has brought about that change of view? Where did they learn it from? And does it still sit well with the rest of what you know from Scripture? Too often in recent years, we have seen well-respected, influential teachers and leaders make dramatic shifts in their thinking or suddenly declare a theology contrary to that found in the Bible. Steve Chalk, Rob Bell are perhaps the most obvious examples, but in no way are they alone. Is what you're learning changeable? Does it depend on current cultural shifts? Are we changing scripture to fall in line with what the rest of the world says? We need to be careful that we're not just blindly accepting what we read in Christian books. When you read, be prepared to challenge. Be prepared to disagree. Read, yes, read lots, but do so remembering what you have learnt. Because that's Paul's other point. Remember who you've learnt from. And more importantly, remember what you have learnt. Paul tells Timothy not just to rely on the things that Eunice, Lois and he have told him about their experiences, but to ground that in the scripture he's been taught. All scripture is God-breathed. What is Paul talking about? Well, certainly what Timothy has learned from infancy is the Old Testament. 
Eunice was a Jewish woman married to a Greek man. So certain things were lacking from Timothy's Jewish upbringing. We know he wasn't circumcised because this was a Jewish father's responsibility. But Eunice and her mother Lois had ensured that Timothy knew the scriptures. He may not have had the the strict Jewish upbringing that Eunice might have liked, but she made it a priority for Timothy to know the God of Israel. Now, presumably when she became a Christian, she then spent time showing Timothy the promise of Jesus she had found in the Old Testament along with Lois. Now, the obvious lesson from this, and particularly as a children's worker, the obvious lesson is that our children need to know the Bible. They need to read it. They need to be taught it. They need to learn how to find Jesus in it all. I'm aware that there are grandparents here whose children aren't Christian. But unless they specifically ask you not to, you can still teach your grandchildren to love the Bible. I will do everything I can to help you do that, whether you're parents or grandparents, so please do talk to me about it. But actually the real point is that as Christians, we shouldn't, we can't neglect the Old Testament. Timothy was raised initially on Jewish scriptures. Paul doesn't tell him to forget about them and listen to current teaching only. He says, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. All scripture is God-breathed. We can't decide certain passages aren't just because we don't like them. That's part of the reason, as a church, we don't follow the lectionary. Well, the logic behind it is that it gives you a balanced diet of scripture. In reality, it doesn't. Because it misses out odd verses. It misses out chunks, particularly those that talk about God's judgment or wrath. It also makes it very easy to follow the lectionary, but never preach on the difficult bits, because there's always a lovely, easy gospel bit to go with it. But if all scripture is God-breathed, then that means we have to study the tricky bits. We have to grapple with the bits we'd rather weren't there. So if there's a bit you think we've been missing out, but should tackle, please let me know. And I will let the preaching team know that it was your fault. (laughs) And Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. We have to stop adding stuff. The shack. The Da Vinci Code, heaven is for real, love wins, are not scripture. If they're revealing something new about God, however much we like it and take comfort from it, we have to weigh it against what we have already learnt and become convinced of. Now, if you became a Christian because you read one of those books, that's great. Don't worry, I'm not saying you're not a real Christian. Go away and start again. But please come and talk to me or someone else on the preaching team or someone on the staff team because we have to introduce you to the real God found in the pages of the Bible. There is all sorts of literature out there about what God is like, what Jesus achieved on the cross, what particular books or even passages or even verses mean, what heaven is like, how you get there, who's saved and who isn't. And it can all be very confusing But that shouldn't put us off reading. And it shouldn't make us only read what one or two people write. But the only way we will know whether to trust what we're reading is to weigh it against the truth found in our Bibles. 
If what I've read or listened to has changed my view of God or my understanding of the Bible, is that because my understanding previously was wrong or incomplete? Or because I've been presented with an unbiblical false teaching? What have we learned? And who did we learn it from? Two key questions when deciding whether to trust what we're hearing and reading. But verses 16 and 17 present us with one other question. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The last question, and it applies to us whether it's a Christian book, a sermon or the Bible itself, is what are we using it for? What are we using it for? Lots of the books that become massively popular amongst Christians worldwide make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. When The Shack first came out 10 years ago, many of the people in my church then who simply adored the book, I was not one of them, uh, told me that at last they had an image of God that sat right with them. Or that they got great comfort from the picture of God presented in that book. But it's an incomplete picture of the God found in the pages of our Bibles. Heaven is for real presents a picture of heaven that feels warm and comforting. The knowledge that our loved ones will be waiting for us. And that Jesus will send us back if people pray for us not to die. And all of that might be true. But it declares a truth I don't find anywhere in my Bible. Heaven is for Real has sold over 10 million copies and is a film. The Shack, over 22 million. So why do we turn to these books in their millions? Because they make us feel good. They give us that warm, fuzzy feeling. Part of the reason we avoid the Old Testament so much is that it doesn't often provide that. But if we're honest, most of the New Testament doesn't either. Paul doesn't write any letter to make anyone feel warm and fuzzy. If we find, we find ourselves stuck on a very restricted diet of some psalms and a bit of the gospel. But Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. So why the disconnect? Well, what does Paul actually say? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What Paul doesn't say is, some of scripture is God-breathed and is useful for making yourself feel warm and fuzzy so that life's a bit more bearable. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that scripture is designed to make us feel bad. Or that if we read a passage and it makes us feel surrounded on every side by a God who loves us so much he was prepared to give up his only son that we're reading it wrong. But the Bible isn't about us. It's about our great and glorious God, all-powerful, all-knowing, ruler and creator of the universe, who loves us so much that he was prepared to give up his son to have us. This book should challenge us to make us go, wow, God really loves me and I really don't deserve it. How can I ever live up to what he created me to be? And then give us the answers.
The Bible should challenge us. It should provoke us. It should show us where we're out of step and call us back in line. Yes, there's comfort in the Bible. Its pages are littered with places to go just to hear again that God loves you. That you don't have to be right to come to him. That Jesus thought you were worth giving up his life for. And it's right for us to spend time listening to those truths. But if we do that, walk away thinking, oh, that's better, God loves me no matter how, much, how messed up I am, that's just what I needed. We're missing the point. God's incredible love for us, despite our unworthiness, should lead us to say, that is amazing. I need to live a life worthy of that love. How do I do that? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. The pages of our Bibles should teach, they should rebuke, they should correct and they should train. Are we reading stuff, the Bible or otherwise, because we want to be made to feel better or because we want to be made better? Are we listening to sermons, podcasts, etc. because we want to be told how much God loves us or because we want to know how to show God how much we love him? When we've read or listened, the question we need to ask ourselves is, have I been challenged or changed to be more like Christ because of it? Misguided and deliberately false teaching will always be around. We will always have to stand against it. And Paul tells Timothy over and over again that it will actually get worse as time goes on. But we have the word of truth in our hands. Evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Amen.